Happy Friday, everyone. Today is July 12th, and this is episode 49 of Get Your Tech On, our show on all things Doxis. I'm Brady Volpe, founder of Nimble This and the Volpe Firm. With us today is John Downey, a very tired John Downey. He's, uh, I think, recently flown in, and uh, John is also technical leader at Cisco Systems. Uh, John, welcome back, and glad to have you with us. Yeah, yeah, I uh, flew a red eye last night from Argentina. Um, so yeah, I'm just getting in. Uh, I did change my shirt, so at least you got a <laughs> clean shirt. <laughs> you can't smell me, so I'm good. <laughs> so, so I, don't, I did actually, you know, I was re- looking over your title again here. You, you are technical, a CMTS technical leader, right? Yes. Yes. So technically, so where do you lead CMTSs? <laughs> to the junk, to the to the to the graveyard. <laughs> well, you think about it, we're going more cloud, right? Yep. So it seems like yeah, hardware is kind of going away. Uh, that's the evolution. That's the migration that we're going towards. But you know, as well as I, um, old technology doesn't go away. Um, we still have one one modems out there. Still have two modems out there. So um, you know, people are going to have CMTSs for ten, fifteen, twenty years. Uh, newer stuff might evolve into cloud, you know. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is amazing when you say old, old technology doesn't go away because it is remarkable how many customers I still see out there with a lot of old equipment. I mean, Docs two O CMTS is even sometimes, and and uh, it, so to your point, it doesn't go away. But I do think the future is is as you're saying, virtualization. And I have um, I have some interesting stuff in the news that I I want to touch on because this is you know, there's some kind of cool stuff going on out there. Um, one of them focuses on virtualization, and, and this one's kind of um, uh, interesting thing that came up. So Comcast is committing millions of dollars to Harmonic's KOS platform, which is a totally virtualized platform, and, and that's, I think, one of the reasons they're looking at that. So, um, so that, you know, I think is one of the things that this article is focusing on here is according to an 8K document filed Tuesday by Harmonic that uh, Comcast has elected um, effective July 1st uh, for enterprise licensing and has committed to $175 million in software license fees over the four-year term. I think that seems like a low amount of money, but when you look at Harmonic's platform, it uh, and part of what this talks about is the fact that it's all off-the-shelf equipment, meaning it's basically servers. Dell servers or Intel servers that they're they're putting that virtualized system on, and then they can plug and play with um, virtually anyone's RPDs, remote fi devices, and stuff like that. Um, so I think this is really the wave of the future is virtualization, and and I think as we saw at Anga, uh, everyone's sort of talking about virtualization of the CCAP platforms. So we kind of see this uh, going on. We see it the same in test equipment as well. So that was that was one thing that caught my eye. This next one, um, I think, is a is a game changer. This is from TechDirt. Can't see it at the top of the heading there. The interesting thing in the article, I, I think, first of all, is the title where it says Google's dead wrong if it thinks broadband caps won't hurt game streaming. The overall article is what Google is doing is is they're changing the dynamics of the way gaming is. And and first of all. Uh, I just did an article for Broadband Library. It'll be coming out in a couple of months, their, their next issue. And uh, I'm a gamer. I did a lot of research for this. It's basically focused on low latency and gaming. And I was really shocked by how big the gaming industry, monetarily, how big the gaming industry is, and who the users of the gaming industry is, meaning that the median age of the gamer is 31 years old. So it's not like 11 and 12-year-olds, like, like my wife always accuses me of, of you know, go play with your eleven-year-old <laughs> friends. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's people who make decisions, of buying decisions of, you know, well, well, like what service they're going to use. But you have to read my article when it comes out. It's really surprising how much money's in the gaming industry, and I think Google realizes this. So what Google is doing here is they're creating a service called Stadia. What Stadia does is it virtualizes your console games, like your Xboxes, your, uh, your, 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 your Nintendos, everything like that, your PlayStations, even, even computers that need high-end gaming cards. You're not going to require that anymore. Google's going to do all that computation in their cloud computing service. So, you know, Google's cloud is equivalent to like AWS and uh, Microsoft Azure. 
and they're going to stream that content uh, over the internet. So they're doing computation in the cloud, and then they're streaming the the video games directly to whatever device you want to play it on, whether it's a TV, an iPhone, Android phone, computer, and you just need you just need the touch controls or some type of a controller to be able to play the game. The crux of this article is what they're saying is, you know, today operators are capping the amount of data that you're uh, streaming in, you know, primarily the downstream and, you know, say, well, if you, you know, for example, AT&T does not cap if you, if you use AT&T streaming service, but if you use Netflix, they're going to cap it. Comcast has a, um, uh, you know, caps on their services and stuff. The interesting thing here is they say that if you use Stadia, um, you're going to blow through, as an example, Comcast's um, one terabyte cap in a matter of just three days using Stadia's service, their, their gaming service. And, and so I, I think that's sort of to give everyone an example of how much data will be streamed over this Stadia gaming service, because there's there's not going to be any any uh, you're not going to be buying CDs or anything like that to put into an Xbox anymore. Uh, there's there's none of that's going to happen. It's all well, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even have an Xbox, right? You won't even have an Xbox exactly. And they're, they're yeah. saying the processing can be done on smart TVs because the, the processing is the processing now that occurs in an Xbox or you know a GeForce a really powerful gaming um, video card. That's not going to be necessary anymore. And, and that's their goal is to make gaming much more accessible to a lot of users who today can't afford to go out and buy a big gaming rig. Yeah. And the, the thing beyond that is all the big gaming companies, Epic, everyone else is behind Google on this. They're getting on board because they see now they can access more users. So the reason I said I thought the heading was interesting is, you know, they're saying Google's dead wrong if it thinks broadband caps are going to are going to hurt the gaming industry are going to hurt game streaming. I'm kind of wondering, you know, who's right and who's wrong here? Is it going to be Google that's wrong or is it going to be the the cable operators or the, you know, the broadband providers that are wrong here because at the end of the day is it, you know, is it really the customer that's right? Is it the subscriber that's right that says, you know, if if you're going to cap me, I'm going to go find another provider or I'm going to find another way to get this service. So I think this is this is also going to be game changing here. <laughs> game changing for gamers. <laughs> this is I think one of those like uh, market changing things that's going to occur. Very easy, interesting to see how it's going to to unravel. Uh, and, and talk about really, what is the next killer app. It, this, this could be the next this, killer app. This could be the next killer app. I think we're looking at here because um, it's changing completely the way gaming is. And and like I said, read my next article coming out in Broadband Library because it's amazing, amazing the money that's involved in gaming and also the way people are changing. People read my article; it's good. Um, mm-hmm. Final thing in, in the news that that I found was neat. Uh, so I think. Several months ago, we talked about Tesla looking at putting in broadband satellites low Earth orbit, 3,236 feet. So uh, now Amazon is doing the same thing. They're looking at putting in about um, 3,000 or more of these satellites in low Earth orbit. Uh, They're trying to get FCC approval right now. So, I mean, who does this benefit? Well, it benefits people like you, John, who live out in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And uh, it would. They, you know, you you don't want to have a high Earth orbit satellite like Hughes because you get just horrible, horrible latency and it's slow. So we get these low Earth at low low Earth, <laughs> yeah, lower Earth satellites. Orbit. Leo, 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 yes. Yeah. And it's much better for a, particularly rural areas where you you just don't have the high speed connection. And uh, so this is this is a great thing. You think, you think you think about it like cell phones and mobile service. Just take that terrestrial network and just move it up into the air. Absolutely, that's basically what we're doing. You know, you're you're just moving like tow- towers, if you will, <laughs> uh, up into the air. Uh, people talked about doing blimps and balloons and planes flying over yep. top. But if if we can do the reason why we do geosynchronous uh, satellites is it's it's synchronous with geo, which is the Earth, right? So you got to go above the equator three to twenty two thousand miles, whatever it is. Uh, so that you can focus on a satellite and you stay connected to that satellite forever. Um, but when you move the satellites closer, you don't have the same orbit as the, as the rotation as the Earth. So you have to go more satellites to get more coverage, and you have to have handoffs and stuff like that. 
But, uh, yeah, if you get good coverage with all these satellites, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of uh, space trash. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, and then once we get that, we have good coverage, and then we have uh, Cyberdyne and, and uh, <laughs> it's Terminator like, yeah, 3. The future's, the future's getting really near. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, Got a lot of shade. Yeah. <laughs> I think the one problem is the you know, low-Earth Leo satellites will have <laughs> is uh, latency still. So, I mean, that'll be the, the, the opportunity broadband still going to have over satellites. I agree. I agree. It's like the question will be, what does low mean? Low could be relative. Is it halfway? So it's at 22,000 miles. It's still 11,000 miles. I mean, still, it's going to be a, a lot of delay, just yep. like my voice in my picture right now. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So our topic today is cable modem registration kind of getting back to some basic things because we got you know, we got lots of new lots of new people out there who just haven't been through some of these trainings we've given before so we're going to I'm going I'm going to go through my sort of basic cable modem registration it doesn't really cover Doxis 3.1 stuff but it kind of gets the fundamentals in there and uh, I'm sure you'll come in with a lot of uh uh, of your input as well to to uh, add on to my my sort of what I call the CM color CM registration <laughs> simplified overview and this is sort of a presentation I've given many times but it all starts with a with a basics so I kind of have this I have a so for people listening to podcasts I have a basic slide up here that has a CMTS on one side a cable modem on the other side it shows an upstream and a downstream and the fundamental here is the RF plant is in the center and and you know we kind of build the RF plant DOCSIS protocol on top of that and IP protocol on top of that but before I really talk about cable modem registration we have to assume the physical plant is working and if the physical plant's not sound and reliable cable modem is not going to register. So that, that is always something we have to assume is working well. So, you know, we, we take a cable modem out of the box, at a subscriber's home, we plug in the power, we plug, well, first we plug in the coax to the cable modem, then we plug in the power, and you start to see those lights blink on the front of the cable modem. And we always use the lights blinking as, a, you know, a way of understanding really whether or not that cable modem's come online. But a lot of times... We don't understand if the light is uh, if the lights are you know working or not and stuff like that. Uh, so, whew, I'm just looking here. We got that agent seven junior seven here said John is just illustrating how difficult echo cancellation is in FDX. <laughs> so that's that's back to your problems, John. <laughs> So, okay, so, so you, you plug the cable mode and you power it in, you got the lights flashing, and a lot of folks don't, you know, they understand, well, yeah, I've got downstream lock, I've got upstream lock, and the modem comes online. And what we're going to talk about is what's going on behind there. So, so first of all, on, a, on the left-hand side of my slide, I have a CMTS. On the right-hand side of the slide, I have what the cable modem's doing. In the first box, we show a, a sync. So the, the CMTS sends out sync messages. These are kind of like timing messages. And they send out these sync messages every 200 milliseconds. It's, it's kind of keeping all the, CM, all the cable modems in synchronization that are online. Uh, the CMTS is also sending out UCD messages. These are upstream channel descriptors. That tells the cable modem basically you know, what language it's going to communicate. Uh, it has information about what the upstream uh, channels are, about uh, what the upstream bandwidth is, things that ca- this cable modem needs to know to transmit on the upstream. And then the CMTS is also sending out MAP messages. So these are media access protocol. Uh, is that what they are, Matt, John? Uh, media access protocol messages? MAP, do you remember? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, <laughs> I heard that it actually didn't wasn't an acronym at one time. Uh, no, it is an acronym. Mapping it's, of time. It's media okay. access. I know that. I just can't remember if the P is protocol or not. So anyhow, it's irrelevant. Someone can look it up and tell us if we're right or not. <laughs> so, we're so, supposed to be the experts, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, stump the chumps. Oh, so anyhow, the, yeah, the map messages are just telling cable modems um, everything is scheduled in, in DOCSIS. So cable modems can't just randomly communicate at any at, at their whim, they have to know. You know, he, here's an opportunity for me to transmit in the upstream, and that, that's the the map message is just synchronizing every cable modem when they can transmit. So the cable modem, when it first comes online, the first job it has to do is find out 
uh, what are the downstream DOCSIS channels? Because we, we have a lot of QAM channels in a downstream. Some of them could be video QAM, uh, some could be analog QAM, uh, channels, and, and then we have the DOCSIS QAM channels. So a cable modem will start scanning the downstream and look for uh, the DOCSIS QAM channels. If it locks on, and this is just talking about SC QAM, we're not even talking about OFDM here. Uh, so it, it looks for a QAM channel, it'll lock on a QAM channel, an SC QAM channel, and it looks for that sync message that the CMTS is sending, that timing message. If it finds the sync message, it looks for a UCD message, the, the message that you know, basically says... Hey, let's, let's, let's back up a, little, a second real quick. Yeah. Uh, because when Doxus first came out, it was MPEG-2 encapsulated, or uh, I guess encapsulated is a good word for it. Um, it was the intent was to be able to mix Doxus and video together, and no one ever does that. But that was the original intent. Um, so Doxus is MPEG-2, uh, has four and a half bytes for every 188 byte MPEG frame. But there's a PID, a program identifier of one FFE that indicates Doxus. So if the modem locks on a regular QAM and that PID is not correct, it's a video QAM, then it'll just move on to the next QAM. Yep. And the next QAM has the PID of one one FFE. This is okay. This must be a Doxus qualm, and then it'll start doing the other stuff. Correct. Yeah. So it can it can do that differentiation before it even even goes to this next step. Once it finds that Doxus channel, the uh, the one FFE, then it ha then it says, okay, does this Doxus channel have the sync message, the UCD message? If it doesn't have those, it could be. I mean, we get into sort of um, Doxus 3.0. It could be a secondary channel, in which oh, case, yeah. The other the other question would be. Depending on the modem vendor, where do you start scanning? You yeah. know, it has a table built into it that says start at 453 or start at 550 or start at 120. And you, you, the cable company could have asked the vendor to put a, a proprietary scanning table in. Yeah, like so always start at 700. So that's, I mean, you you raise a good point there because a lot of times um, folks will go into field and wonder why it takes so long for a modem to lock on a downstream. And it, it could be because they have their DOCSIS channel just below where that cable modem has be, has been programmed to start looking for its, its first downstream channel. So as an example, if it starts looking at 500 megahertz and your DOCSIS channel is down at, at uh, you know, 499 megahertz, it's gonna go, it's gonna start at 500 megahertz, go all the way up to say 860 megahertz and then go down to the lowest channel and go up to 499. So it, it'll have to scan the whole band. And, and every modem, it, we, it's gotten progressively fa uh, faster as modem technology has improved because modems have now broadband tuners rather than earlier modems that had narrowband tuners. Uh, but you know, depending on where your DOCSIS channel is and where that cable modem is programmed to start searching for DOCSIS channels, it could take a long time. So to your point, John, some operators will have the modems programmed to start looking exactly where the DOCSIS channel is. That really speeds up the time it takes to lock on a downstream. Uh, some operators will burn in the modems in the head end, so when it does lock, uh, the cable modem remembers at least its last one or two channels that it locked into. So when you go out to the subscriber's house, it remembers that downstream channel that got programmed in the head end, and then it'll quickly lock at the subscriber's house. So as a tech, you're not waiting at the subscriber's house for 20, 30 minutes for the modem to find a downstream if it's brand new out of the box. Correct. I think those are all good things to uh, point out. Uh, so now, you know, the, the modem locks on the downstream, finds the sync, finds the UCD, finds the map, and says, okay, finally I'm on that DOCSIS. So that's, that's all part of that very first step of locking to the downstream channel. So, so, so how do you confirm? So let me give you my dilemma. I'm in the head end. I'm logged into the CMTS. I don't see a modem's MAC address at all. So at that point, I don't know if it's upstream or downstream. So I usually ask the technician or the customer, hey, is the downstream LED solid? Because if the modem has an LED that's solid, then it, the downstream must be fine because it locked. Because from the CMTS perspective, you don't see anything until the modem starts doing some upstream. But you don't know from the CMTS perspective if it's a downstream issue or not. Yeah. You know, it could be downstream power levels are bad. But, I mean, if the modem has the solid LED for downstream sync and then you see it blinking on the upstream, then at least you know the downstream is locked. Yep. 
Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's basically what the, what you're doing with the LEDs is looking for that first light to, to light solid, and, and then you got the lock. So, so once you got the lock, now what's going to happen is, actually, I think I'm on the wrong slide here. Once you have the downstream lock, now the cable modem has to get lock on the upstream. So the first thing the cable modem starts doing is it's going to transmit at its lowest transmit power which is for a DOCSIS 2 cable modem, 8 dBmV, for a DOCSIS 3.0 cable modem, 23 dBmV. And I'm not, what sure, I'm not sure what it is for a DOCSIS 3.1 modem. Do you know what that is, John? Is it also 23 dBmV? Uh, it might be 23 as well, yeah. if I recall. And, and the reason a cable modem will start at its lowest transmit power is in order to, to make sure that it doesn't uh, transmit over other cable modems because this is a contention window here when we begin transmitting. So uh, what a contention window is, is the CMTS basically says, hey, any cable modem that wants to start coming online and sending its range request win messages, uh, here's a window of opportunity because at this point, these cable modems uh, basically are, are not known by the CMTS. So they will send a range request to the CMTS and basically say, hey, I'm here. Can you hear me? Now, transmit at a really low level, the CMTS is not going to be able to hear that modem. So if it does not get a range response back from the CMTS, basically the CMTS saying, hey, yeah, I can hear you, it'll increase its transmit power by 3 dB and try again and say, hey, Mr. CMTS, can you hear me now? And it'll keep doing that process until the CMTS responds back with a range response. And the range response, so the, the first step of the cable modem sending range request is normally called a NIT R1. So that's the, you'll see that maybe on the CMTS or some dashboards. Sometimes modems are stuck in a NIT R1 because they're sending that range request to the CMTS, but they're never getting the response back from the CMTS. Once the CMTS responds back with a range response saying, hey, yeah, Mr. Cable Modem, I can hear you, now it's in a NIT R2 where now the CMTS is starting to make power adjustments, timing adjustments, uh, maybe pre-equalization adjustments to the cable modem. And that's, that's a NIT R2, where it's, it's now an initial, you know, it's, it's starting the, the ranging process, but the cable modem still is not online. The CMTS is just making timing and power frequency and maybe pre-equalization adjustments to that cable modem so that it's at the right uh, you know, it's, it's basically at the, at, the, at the right settings that it should be to communicate with the CMTS. So, any thoughts on that, John, that you want to add? Yeah, so to re reiterate there would be, or to add more to it, would be when a modem's in a NIT R1 and initial ranging, uh, that is the initial ranging, initial maintenance burst in a mod profile. So, when you look at a mod profile, uh, the IM burst is being used during an NITR1. In that mod profile, there is spec T bytes there. So you could have some uncorrectable fact during an NITR1 because in NITR1, there's no scheduled time. You don't know where the modem is. It's just, it has some opportunity to send. So you have multiple modems sending, trying to register at the same time. They have collisions and they back off. So if they have collisions, and because the mod profile incorporates a spec T byte, you're going to get uncorrectable fact. So a word of caution there would be uh, don't track your uncorrectable FEC until you know things have settled down in regards to registration. Uh, also, if you see a lot of modems in a NIT R1, it doesn't even have to be a lot. I could have one modem stuck in a NIT R1 chewing up all my initial maintenance opportunities, and other modems are not even getting to a NIT R1 because this one is using up all the opportunities. So, yeah, for instance, I had an example like that where a modem was in a NIT R1 with bad levels, and the last 10 modems out of 200 wouldn't come online. So it was a, a bit strange. Right. Uh, so it's something to look for is a NIT R1 is contention time. You could have collisions. Once modems get to a NIT R2, they get their timing, they get their power levels, they get their pre-equalization, their unicast opportunities. So it's actually timed to do that fine ranging. So uh, you don't have to worry about having collisions when the modem's in a NIT R2. And then in NITR2, as far as the mod profile goes, would be the station maintenance burst. So whatever settings are in the station maintenance burst, that's what's used during NITR2. Right. All right, so the next process after that 
Now the, ca- the, the cable modem should be, it should have the right power, should have the right timing, should be in sync with all the other modems in the system. So now we can start doing IP level, uh, higher level communications, in, in which case now the modem can send a request to the CMTS and say, hey, I'd like to ask for, to, uh, I'd like to send some data on the network. So it sends a request to the CMTS. The CMTS responds with a map message that says, okay, here, this time in the future, you can send some data. So when that, when that grant comes down to the modem, the modem can send a DHCP discover message to the DHCP server, which is not part of the CMTS. Uh, it's, it's a separate server. And so now we're talking IP communications here. And the, the DHCP server will reset, respond back with a DHCP offer. It'll get an IP address. There's an acknowledgement sent back and forth. And now the, the modem actually knows how to send and receive data on the network because it, it has all that thing, you know, an IP address, default gateway, uh, the information for the time of day server, TFTP server, stuff like that. It'll ask for the time of day from the time of day server. So when you get log messages on the modem, you can actually see that there's a, a proper time of day uh, associated with the log messages. And then finally, uh, the final steps of registering with a CMTS is that the cable modem uh, again, it'll ask the CMTS, say, I want to transmit some more data. It'll get a grant from the CMTS, and it'll request the TFTP boot file, uh, the configuration file that was handed to, the name of the configuration file that was handed to the modem during the DHCP process. It'll download that TFTP file, and the TFTP file gives the modem a lot of information. This is like your maximum transmit speed, your maximum you know, upload and download speed, uh, a number of other uh, in pieces of information like whether or not we're going to use encryption, which is called BPI or baseline privacy interface specification. Um, so this is all the information that the modem needs to know to, to do the rest of uh, coming online. Uh, then it'll send a request to the CMTS to say, okay, you know, I, I have everything I think I need to know to come online. Uh, some There's some shared secrets in there and it'll send those to the CMTS. The CMTS will review that information, see if this is a valid modem, and then if it is, it'll send it then a registration uh, response and this cable modem will send in a registration acknowledgement and at that fine, you'll finally see that uh, that network light come on and the modem at this point is fully online. Uh, so, let me let me uh, add in of course. my two cents. So uh, once the modem goes from an it R1, it R2, and it RC for range complete, and we get into this the back office side of the modem registration, like a NIT D, I have my own little mnemonic Dora, discover, offer, request, acknowledge. So that's the DHCP process, right? So the first thing is discover. So you'll see a modem in a NIT D from the CMTS perspective. Once I get to that point, the CMTS is actually, and the modem is actually using a data burst, not any part of the maintenance mod profile bursts. So in the mod profile, you have request burst, initial maintenance, space maintenance, A short, A long, A U G S. So the A means advanced. Um, so a lot of times, a NIT D modem is actually using an A short burst to do a NIT D. So I've had cases where the MDR was subpar. And because the ranging of the modem was using QPS K or 16 QAM, it actually went through fine, and then the modem got stuck in a NIT D. So there's two reasons it would get stuck in a NIT D. One, it can't get to the helper address. Like your the server you mentioned, usually we call it a helper address. So on this MTS, we have uh, a bundle interface that we put a cable helper address, and that's usually the IP of the server where your DHP server is. Well, if I can't get to it, uh, then the modem can't get to it. So you might want to do a ping. Uh, and just a ping from the CMTS might not tell the whole story. You might have to do a ping from the bundle interface or wherever the modems are coming from. Um, so you, like your, your tar- your, you know what your target address is, but you might have to change your source address for your ping. Uh, if ping works um, and you have access to the DHC server, what if it's upstream noise? Because if I'm trying to do a NIT D, the cable modem is trying to use an A short burst at 64 qualm, and if the MER is only 20 dB, well then maybe 16 qualm works, and that's fine for maintenance. That's why the modem was able to go in NIT R1, and NIT R2, and NIT RC, and then it got stuck in a NIT D. So my point is, 
uh, never disregard the physical plant. <laughs> it, it might be a registration issue, or it might be a server issue, no access to that DHB server, but it could still be a plant issue. Yeah, and I, I think that's really worth emphasizing highly, because I, I, I think a lot of people don't understand that, that there's different profiles assigned to different data transmissions on the cable modem, and for station maintenance, um, it's very common that operators will assign station maintenance either QPSK or 16 QAM, as you were saying, and station maintenance is this init R1, init R2, where the cable modem's sending the ranging requests to the CMTS. And so if there's a lot of noise, that ranging request will always get through, almost always get through to the CMTS if the upstream is QPSK. And, and then they'll sign a higher order modulation, like 64 QAM, to the data. And the data is what the subscribers send back and forth. The data is also what is, is DHCP is sent on or TFTP is sent on. So to your point, John, we can do a NIT R1 just fine. We can do a NIT R2 just fine if they're set to QPSK or maybe 16 QAM. And then when we actually try to send the data, the data that the subscribers would also be using, which is at 64 QAM, it's going to get stuck there. It's not going to get its IP address, or maybe it will get its IP address because it's you know a little bit of data, but then it tries to download the TFTP file. It can't download that or you know can't make that communication. So I, I've seen modems maybe pass sometimes DHCP because it tries it multiple times, but then gets stuck downloading the TFTP file or you know, sometimes gets stuck in DHCP for precisely the reason that you're saying. And and I think for someone just to understand that fundamental process of, well, it's getting through, you know, the, the, the initialization stage, stage of ranging, but it, it can't get beyond that. It's using a higher order modulation to get to, to use that. So that gives us another piece of information to say you can do the first part because we're at a lower mod- modulation, can't do the next part because it's a higher order modulation. That's a noise issue. Correct. Correct. And the, the other thing I would add was uh, when the modem is doing TFTP, the state from the CMTS would be init-o. So init-o means options file. Uh, the options file is the TFTP process. If the modem has uh, parameters in the CM file when you do the TFTP uh, and the parameters are not good for that modem, a lot of times the result will be re- reject C. Yeah. So if you see modems come off reject C for reject class of service, basically something's wrong with the CM file. They didn't like it. So, John, there's a lot of people complaining, saying that you have a ton of echo coming back. I'm actually not hearing the echo. They're wondering if maybe you have some external speakers or something like that coming back. I will tell everyone we're we're making a an audio recording at the same time. That's the one that goes up on the podcast. So if you don't like John's audio, you can just stop listening to us now and catch the podcast version of this. It'll have good audio on it. I promise that you promise you that. So I apologize uh, if uh, if you're having issues with John's audio. We'll make sure the podcast sounds awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay <laughs> i don't know what's wrong I, you know john i think we had echo problems with the the last session too so we'll have to figure out what uh what's going on that causes the echo on the on the youtube version of it but i don't hear it man you sound good to me <laughs> okay <laughs> so all right so that's what i wanted to cover on just the you know again really basics of the uh, slides i think we covered some good issues there as far as like what can happen on that um John, is there anything you wanted to cover on this? Uh, I think you know T two or T three and T four timeouts are are something I definitely wanted to catch on this because this is a lot of times where you can you you know basically the registration process um, not necessarily you will get T T three T four timeouts, but this is where we can normally talk about them. Uh, do you want to cover yeah, those the, in your slides, or do you want to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, let me talk about it um, generically. Uh, to me. The uh, station maintenance that happens ongoing after registration is, for us, Cisco CMTS, it's every 15 seconds when we use line card redundancy. If you're not doing line card redundancy, we're every 20 seconds. But So let's assume it's every 15 seconds for every modem. Um, it's a three-way handshake, right? CMTS says, I want to see zero plus or minus one. If you're outside that range, the CMTS on that next station maintenance period is going to say, change your level accordingly. Uh, the cable modem changes it, and the CMTS might say, good. So there's a three-way handshake. So every 15 seconds, we're doing upstream leveling. We're, from the leveling, we're getting upstream MDR readings. 
time offsets are being readjusted if need be, and pre-equalization. So the pre-equalization taps are being reacquired or, or reset every 15 seconds. Now, the problem I'm seeing lately is when we do DOCSIS 3 option bonding, there's something called a T4 multiplier. And at least for Cisco's case, the default is auto, which means whatever you're using for option bonding, that's the multiplier. So, for example, if a modem is doing four-channel option bonding, it's going to be a 4x multiplier. So 15 seconds times four is 60 seconds. So if a modem has four upstreams, it's getting uh, every 60 seconds, uh, it's getting an update to each one of those upstreams. That means if I have noise on upstream zero, maybe it's grouped away just for that modem. It's not noise funneling. It's not out of white Gaussian noise. It's frequency response. It's grouped away. It's micro-reflections. On upstream zero for that one cable modem, he's not getting an update for 60 seconds. So while I like the idea of the T4 multiplier to limit the amount of station maintenance happening, because the modem has four upstreams, so basically it has 4x redundancy, if you will, or resiliency because there's four upstreams to the station maintenance. Uh, using that auto T4 multiplier can lose granularity of my MER on my upstream levels and my pre-equalization. And that's uh, one of my concerns. And if we went to eight-channel upstream bonding, it would be even worse. So are we, um, are we doing this multiplier to save upstream bandwidth? What was the, what was the original concept behind the multiplier? And I think that was the case, is if you have uh, 10,000 modems, DOCSIS 2.0, you're doing 10,000 station maintenance bursts. If you have 10,000 DOCSIS 3.0 modems, you're basically doing 40,000 station maintenance bursts. Right. Every modem now is like four modems, right? Because it's doing four channels. Yeah, so, so we have a lot less maintenance that, if we're yeah. doing that multiplier. <laughs> yeah, so by doing the multiplier... Uh, uh, number of channels is the multiplier. You're basically back to where you started. Okay, makes sense. So, so, and 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 I would think this becomes even worse with like pre-equalization. Which, so you know, if we're using PNM or I mean, we use pre-equalization to really uh, not not fix return path impairments, but to compensate for return path impairments until we get out there and fix them. Um, so by using that. To heat that that multiplier, are we are we losing some of the capability of pre-equalization, or it just takes longer for pre-equalization to respond? Longer to respond, so I would say you're losing uh, visibility or uh, quickness to response or responsiveness. Maybe that's a good word. Yeah, you know, um, so sixty seconds to get an update, you could obviously have a lot of things happen in sixty seconds. So the wind blows, the cable shakes. You have uh, poor MER because an uncorrectable FEC, and then once the station maintenance comes through 60 seconds later, the pre-EQ requires, and now it looks good again. But there was 60 seconds of potentially losing. That's a whole minute. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but in the realm of 10 megabits per second, it is a lot. <laughs> so what do we do about it? Is, is there anything that can be done? So what... One is understanding it, so educating people to understand what it does. For instance, uh, the other thing we have in the RF tech goes to the house and unplugs the RF cable. They're like, man, how come this downstream staying locked for so long <laughs> because of the T4 multiplier? They're not getting a T4 timeout because the T4 timeout is actually 30 seconds in the modem. So if I have a 4X T4 multiplier in the modem, that's 4 times 30 so I was talking about four times 15 for our sending of the station maintenance, but the modem's T4 timer is 30 seconds. Multiply by four, that's two minutes. So you could unplug the cable of a Dr. 3 modem, and it might stay downstream locked for two minutes straight. That's if it has four, bond, four channels that it's, it's doing. Yeah, right? assuming it's doing four-channel option bonding. So basically, he's stuck with a 4X multiplier. Four times 30 is, is 120. That's two minutes. So... Yeah. There's a case where you're just sitting there wondering what's going on. You're better off power cycling the modem than just pulling the RF. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good if you're pulling pads in return to look for return path noise. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. The modem stay online a lot longer. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, the, other, the other solution would be, uh, and I've been kicking around this idea with some customers, is hard setting my T4 multiplier to two. 
It's kind of like a compromise. If I'm doing four-channel bonding, uh, I can at least cut that in half to two. Yes, I am increasing station maintenance on the whole box, but it's pretty minuscule, and you know that too. You've looked at the amount of station maintenance and how much bandwidth it actually takes. It's minuscule. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, the packets are extremely small. Yeah, so that's one idea is actually hard-setting my T4 multiplier to two to get more granularity or more responsiveness to my MER, my my levels, my pre-equalization, which then also affects P&M, obviously, right? P&M is pre-equalization. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a big part of it, absolutely. Well, yeah, I guess that was the original part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still think of P&M is, is, is upstream, but P&M is everything, right? Upstream, Correct. downstream, full bandwidth capture, you name it. Yeah, it's grown a little. <laughs> a little, a lot. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to kind of dive into was the MER, and some of the things we've seen lately with fluctuating MER readings, and, and there's a couple of things I wanted to bring up to kind of educate customers and, and, and our viewers, if you will. Um, the MER is modulation error ratio, and some people call it SNR. It is really the same thing, but it is not the same thing as CNR. Carrier-to-noise ratio is just a spectrum analyzer, peak-to-peak, amplitude-to-amplitude, noise, ingress, whatever. Yeah. Carrier-to-noise ratio is CNR, carrier-to-noise, yeah. yeah. which is the top of the carrier to the noise floor, whatever crap is in the noise floor. Correct. So on a spectrum analyzer, you're not seeing group delay or timing issues. Uh, you might be able to see uh, a standing wave with a spectrum analyzer, but micro-reflections, you might not see it on a spectrum analyzer, depending on where the micro-reflection is. Oftentimes, you also won't see if there's noise underneath the carrier because true. underneath that QAM channel because it's, it's always full of data. And what if you have a burst from another modem overlapping? Transmitted the on same time. On a spectrum time. analyzer, yeah. yeah on, a, on a spectrum analyzer, you just think it's the same modem. You yeah. don't know who it is. So you can have two modems uh, transmitting on top of each other because it's miswired or the timing, like a modem's time offset is bad. So when it was told to send, it actually wasn't that far away and it overlapped with somebody else's actual information that had good timing. Yeah. And those are, so those so are RF timing. collisions and we actually know those happen uh, due to micro reflections. For example, you can, you can have that with uh, a micro reflection is just an impedance mismatch. And, and so that can mm-hmm. happen. That's another reason it can happen. Correct. So we, we, See these things happening, and we know that we have ingress cancellation on the CMTS to help cancel narrow band steady state ingress, which is good, like CB, you know, citizens band, uh, some ham radio. Uh, but we also have pre-equalization in the modem. So the pre-equalization in the modem can help with standing wave issues, micro-reflections, group delay. Um, but I, I want to reiterate that the MER reading itself is based on the station maintenance burst. So that is from the station maintenance mod profile. It is also dictated by that T4 multiplier we just talked about. But to be specific, if you look at an upstream burst in the time domain, you have a preamble, then you have the actual information, then you have a uh, a roll-off or guard time at the end, the guard band at the end, or guard time, if you will. That preamble, it has a QPSK pattern regardless if the station maintenance is QPSK or 16 QAM. So you can say my station maintenance burst and my mob profile is 16 QAM, but the beginning of the burst, the preamble, is always going to be a QPSK pattern. Now, when you compare that pattern from regular QPSK to 16 QAM, QPSK station maintenance uses a QPSK0 preamble pattern, and 16 QAM uses a QPSK1 preamble pattern. And it turns out it's 3 dB difference. Mm-hmm. So using 16 qualm for the station maintenance burst could give you 3 dB difference in your levels, your MER reading. Uh, and I've seen it really be dependent on vendor of, and firmware of a modem. So that right there could give you a difference in readings. Even though nothing's changing your cable plant, you just change your mod profile. Yeah, And, we and talk- how we're actually making that reading. We talked earlier about this that, you know, because we use different modulation profiles for station maintenance than we do data, so kind of just reiterating this again, 
that that station maintenance mod profile that you're talking about for 16 qualm or QPSK. So we're we're going to MER measurement than that. And and if you change it from QPSK to 16 qualm, we get up to a 3 dB difference. Just in that. Correct. So, so yeah, I think, and it's, and it's I think not, what you normally recommend that is mod- 16 qualm, not QPSK. Correct. Correct. Yeah, uh, and, and usually on the station maintenance burst, we'd like to see 16 qualm because that is used for upstream bonding resiliency. That is used for ping doxis. That is used for the flap list. That is used for your levels like we just talked about. So 16 qualm would be the way to go. You... you you can make an argument that I'd like to do 64 qualm to match up with my data birth, but that's something that we don't allow because the upstream chipset vendor wants to make sure it's robust and the lower modulation means more time on the wire. So a longer time in the, in the time domain for the burst, uh, the better chances the upstream chip can, chip can train on it and get a good reading. Right. So we won't allow 64 qualm for those first three bursts in the mod profile. But I think it's really important for the tech in the field. They they should really ask their, you know, their 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 doxis people, or they they should ask whoever they're working with to understand. You know, are they running sixty four qualm in the field? And if so, what is their their uh, station maintenance modulation? Because this is really important when troubleshooting. Correct, correct. So this MER is after the upstream chip decodes the signal. Uh, it's after ingress cancellation may have already fixed issues. Uh, it's after pre-equalization may have fixed some issues. So these are some self-healing features that we implement to make the RF plant better uh, to get good readings. But what if the MER is still fluctuating? So I had to del- dig a little bit deeper and get the actual algorithm that we're using. Um, we sample, uh, we take 10 samples and we average that for the MER reading. So if I have limited number of modems, then 10 samples could either take a long time to get or, or it could be 10 samples from a single modem because um, of the T4 timer or uh, when modems are responding. 10 samples or symbols aren't that many. Um, but let me give you an example where I could have a real disparity in the MER between two different modems. You have the CMCS set up for zero dBMV, but what if you have something called power just continue six on, where normal modems hit the CMCS at zero, plus or minus one, but you have some modems maxed out in power, and they're allowed to stay online, they hit at minus five. Those modems hitting the CMCS at minus five obviously have five dB worse carry to noise ratio. Mm-hmm. Now, typically, the SNR will be 5 dB worse as well. It could be even more worse, <laughs> worser, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> because of group delay and microflexions. My point is, if the upstream MER is averaging all these different modems, and some modems are different because their power level is different, that could cause some disparity, some fluctuation in your MER output. Right. So, what's the fix? Um, well, for the power just continue, uh, I feel like it's a good band-aid to have to let modems register properly and stay online. Um, <laughs> the T4 multiplier, uh, setting it statically setting it to two, I think works. Not doing power adjust threshold more than the default of plus or minus one. Uh, we had a customer do a power adjust threshold of plus or minus two, and that was basically saying, let the kill modem hit the CMTS at zero, plus or minus two, and don't worry about if it's maxed out in power or not. Like, just let it, any modems come in. Like, you can have some modems at plus 1.75 and another modem at minus two. Well, there's 3.75 dB difference in MER. So I thought so the, I thought the modem doing, could stay online all the way to minus four, typically on a CMTS, unless you change that's what that. The, that. That's the power just continue. Okay. And normally we say we tell people to set it to six to give yourself more headroom. Right. But there's another one called power just threshold. That's the plus or minus around your nominal setting. Mm-hmm. Nominal setting is zero, right? Right. The default power just threshold is plus or minus one. 
I had a customer that opened that up more than they should have. They did it plus or minus two. And that, that's not, uh, that's not something we want to recommend. Yeah. So you're kind of confusing me a little bit on this. So you can go all the way to minus four and the modem still stays online. What, what Correct. you're saying. So, and that, and that's called what again? That's a power just continue. Okay. The, the power just threshold of plus or minus one, that, so that's when the CMTS is just telling the cable modem, stay within this window. If you change that Correct. to plus or minus two, now the, the cable modem, it's just not going to get any adjustments if it's within plus or minus two. Is that what you're Correct. saying? Yeah, the, the, Correct. So when the range response comes back to the modem and the modem is within plus or minus two, CMTS is going to say, hey, you're fine. I'm not going to make any adjustments to you. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, that's, that makes sense. So you end up with yeah. a, a wide variation in MER across your, your entire modem base. Exactly. Yep. Makes sense. Makes sense. So that's sort of where I was going with the fluctuating MERs and kind of understanding that, you know, we're looking for um, 10 samples. How many samples are we getting? Where are those samples coming from? Uh, are they 2 modems? Are they DOCSIS 3 modems? Is it a multiplier? What's the station maintenance burst? There's a lot of variables coming into play affecting our MER readings. Okay. Yeah, so I, I just threw up a slide on there, and um, that, that goes through. Uh, I didn't realize you had that slide included here. I put that up with fl fluctuating upstream yeah. MER readings. Um, so uh, any of our viewers watching this can uh, actually see the details you had explained in that. Yeah. Point. Uh, I didn't want to go too deep into that one because I was just kind of reading it off. But since you put the slide up there, the uh, Broadcom chipset uh, is the one giving us the MER readings, right? So I don't know. I don't care if it's Aris or Cisco, whoever, but it's still the same uh, silicon. So it's a Broadcom chipset. We're all using the same silicon. But you'll notice that the higher readings that we could provide now, um, the granularity from one reading to the next one, is a jump. There's not real tight granularity. Like the first reading is 45, the second one is 42, the third one's 40. Uh, back in the old days, we used to cap 36.12. Yeah. And that worked out pretty well. If you look at the readings below 36.12, it's more granular. It yeah. drops from 36.12 to 35.56. So you get uh, more granular readings. So if I have a really nice plant as a lab. You could have fluctuations between 45 and 39 that's purely related to the granularity of these error, these error readings. What's coming back from the chipset has nothing to do with the plant. Right. It's like it's off by one, one error bit or something. So uh, my point there would be, don't worry about fluctuating MER when you're well above 33 dB. Sure. Like, for instance, where does 64 qualm break? 27 dB? 23. 23. Well, it 23. starts to yeah, yeah. degrade at 27. Yeah. So it's 23. So anything above 33 is gravy, right? It's like icing on the cake. So for someone to get all up in arms to worry about fluctuating MER when it's 45 and 42, that's a good problem to have. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> place to be. MER? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if, if you're below 33 and you're fluctuating 33 down to 30 and then 29, that could be a concern. Yeah. Right? You don't want to see three, four dB fluctuations when you're already down below 30. Absolutely. So, John, I know you have a call coming up, so yeah. we have to wrap this up. Um, I think we covered some good content today, and that's always our objective, is give everyone just something interesting to listen to every week, and we will try to work on your mic issues for the, before the next show. I know we're working on a couple shows coming up. Uh, we're try to bring everyone good contact every once. Thanks so much for watching. John, thank you for your time. Uh, good luck on your call today, and we'll talk next time. <laughs> Bye, all. So this, hey, the slides we put together, do you put it online for people to download as well? And, uh, if, if you're okay with like that, that, we'll attach them to the, uh, to the YouTube, yeah. uh, and, uh, and that way they'll be available for everyone. Uh, yeah, that's we'll fine put them on our, our Volt Farm channel. Sounds good. All right. So, John, all right. thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks.